0: Let's turn uh, in our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 19. Sunday mornings we're in a series entitled Gleanings from the book of Genesis, and we come to chapter 19. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of these guys that are coming up the aisle right now and they'll put a Bible in your hand. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. Also, while we're turning there, to remind you that on Sunday evenings we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and we'll be continuing our study in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8 this evening, 6 o'clock, each of you are invited. Well, We'll uh, read here in Genesis chapter uh, 19 through verse 29, so you'll be on your feet for a moment or two here, but that's the section we're covering. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And then Lot saw them, when he saw them, he arose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, "Uh, "'Here now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet, and you'll rise uh, early and uh, go on your way.' And they said, "'No, but we will spend the night in the open square.' But he insisted strongly, and so they turned in to him and entered his house, And then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now when they lay down, uh, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and uh, old and young, and all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. And so Lot went out to them through his doorway, shut the door behind him, and he said, "'Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Uh, "'See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. "'Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish, "'only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof.'" And they said, "'Stand back.'" And then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. And so they pressed hard against the man, Lot, with the same intentions toward him, and came near to break down the door. But the men, reached, uh, the, men the angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were in the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. And then the men said to Lot, Have uh, you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, uh, your daughters, and whoever you you may have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against it has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-laws who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law he seemed to be joking. And then the morning dawned, the angels, when it dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, arise, take your wife and your two daughters uh, who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, the hands of his two uh, unmarried daughters, the uh, Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And so it came to pass when they had brought him outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not turn, look back behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain." Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me uh, and I die. And see now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, "See, I have favor, uh, uh, I have favored you concerning this thing, and that I will not overthrow this city for which uh, you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And therefore, the name of the city was Zoar, and the son." "...had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar, and then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And so he overthrew those cities, uh, all the plain, all the habitations of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife, that is Lot's wife, looked back uh, while fleeing behind him, and she became a pillar of salt." And then at one place, if you would turn into the New Testament, in Luke chapter 17, I just want you to see uh, one verse there. I could read it to you, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. Luke chapter 17, third gospel in the New Testament. Jesus is speaking, and he declares to his disciples there and to us, remember Lot's wife. Now let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this time to spend together uh, in your word. And we pray that you would use it this morning in the power of your very present Holy Spirit uh, to speak to our mind, uh, to speak to our heart. And Lord, we pray that you would speak into the uh, intimacy and the Currentness of our personal relationship with you into our spirit. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit this morning through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we jumped from where we were last time, and that was Genesis chapter 16 uh, into chapter 19 and in order to examine God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and um, more specifically to look at this uh, individual that is a part of the record, and that is Lot's uh, wife. And I have uh, protected my freedom uh, to jump entire chapters in going through uh, Genesis in calling this series Gleanings uh, in, in Genesis. And so, while I want to jump those two chapters, there are a couple of very significant things that happened in uh, 17 and 18 that I do want to at least make mention of so that we can enjoy some continuity as we continue uh, our study. In chapter 17, Abram, uh, and his name meaning father of height or high father or exalted father, God changes his name in that chapter, and he is uh, renamed Abraham, which means father of a multitude. He still has no child by uh, Sarah at this point, and it must have been awkward to use his name for a while, but God was uh, reaffirming the promise of what he would uh, do through him. God also in that chapter instituted the right of circumcision with Abraham and his descendants as a sign and a seal of his covenant with him. God also changed Sarai's name to Sarah. And Sarah's name means uh, princess. And no one is happier for these name changes of Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah than I am. I'll have to be retrained now so that we can refer to them by their names that they're uh, most commonly known by, and that is Abraham and, and, and Sarah. And with the name change of Sarah, God made it clear to Abraham that uh, the fulfillment of his promise to him uh, to make a great nation of him and a blessing to all of the people that it would occur through a son that would be born to uh, Sarah. And that they were to name this child, this boy who would be born Isaac, in chapter eighteen, uh, Jesus himself, in what is uh, a christophany or a theophany that is an old testament uh, pre incarnate appearance of of Jesus He uh, uh, is on the pages of, of scripture here in chapter eighteen. And uh, Jesus now comes to Abraham accompanied by two angels. And during this meeting, uh, Jesus made uh, known in the hearing of Sarah uh, the promise that God had made to Abraham of the fact that Sarah uh, would bear Abraham a son. And then the Lord uh, made known to Abraham that a divine judgment was going to be poured out upon Sodom and Gomorrah, that this judgment was impending uh, because of the greatness of their sin, because of the gravity of the sin that was being committed there uh, in, in the city. And after Abraham had interceded with the Lord for the, for the sparing of the city of Sodom, uh, if there were but ten righteous to be found within the city, of course his uh, mind is upon Lot and his family that are uh, now firmly embedded within the city and, and desiring to, uh, sp- that they would be spared the judgment that was about to come. And... Following that intersection, intercession, the Lord and the two angels departed from Abraham. Uh, the two angels, the story follows them, and uh, they go then into the city of Sodom in order to witness the uh, wickedness of the city firsthand, and also in an attempt to deliver Lot and his family from the judgment. Uh, to come it was probably here in in, in uh, Genesis chapter 18 that Jesus was referring to when he was discussing with the Jewish religious leaders in the course of his life and public ministry in John chapter 8 verse 56 he speaks of an incident in which he had personal contact with Abraham and he said to the religious leaders your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it, and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And it was probably in chapter 18 that that event occurred. The the wickedness of, of Sodom is uh, spelled out for us in pretty graphic detail in the first 14 verses of of chapter 19 here. Uh, the two angels enter the city in the evening. You can picture it in your mind, verse 1. Uh, nephews, uh, a- a- Abraham's nephew Lot is sitting in the gate of the city at this time and, uh, and the-, the the gate of the city was the place where the leaders or the elders of a city would sit. So uh, Lot has become a prominent uh, uh, man, an influential man, Uh, in Sodom. Uh, Lot's hospitality is described to us in verses 2 and 3. He makes a beeline for them when he sees them out in the courtyard of the city, and he invites them to spend the night in his home. In fact, he uh, fully insists that they uh, do so. So he extends the invitation to them, and, uh, and they decline the invitation. They said, no, we'll just spend the night uh, here in the square. And uh, Lot then insisted even further. I mean, he will not take no for an answer in verse 3 and insist that they come and enjoy the hospitality and the the protection of his home. Of course, Lot knew uh, all that you needed to know about uh, the wickedness of Sodom and that upon the arrival of these two angels, and we assume that they, as they uh, take the form of a man, that they are very, very attractive. And as these uh, two attractive, uh, they would be assumed to be men by the population, but they are angels, uh, that uh, as soon as they came into the city, people were peeping out behind curtains and the word began to spread very, very quickly throughout the city uh, that that uh, they had come into town, and Lot knew the fact that if they had stayed out in that courtyard of of that city throughout the night, as opposed to coming into the safety of of his home, complete with a locked door, that they would have been uh, brutally and repeatedly sexually abused by uh, the the large number of homosexual men who seemed uh, to dominate the city without any kind of a a fear of repercussions at all associated with with their behavior and with their their wickedness the the wickedness of Sodom is it was soon on full display for the angels here uh, they'd come to investigate it and they didn't have to do any searching it came uh, straight to them As we're told in verses 4 through 11, uh, very quickly they saw and heard all they needed to know about the wickedness of Sodom to realize that it was a city that was ripe for judgment. Because we're told in verse 4 that now the wicked men of Sodom surrounded the house. And lest we think that it might be one or two and, uh, and not really represent any significant part of the population uh, of Sodom, the Holy Spirit tells us that they came and they all ages were represented. Uh, all of the people, the whole city. I mean, here again, the word of these two uh, new men uh, coming in to the city spread throughout it in Very short period of time. It had been noted into what house they had gone into, and all of the wicked imaginings of these men uh, turned into just this unbridled, uncontrolled uh, lust. And they come to the uh, doorway of of Lot's house and they demanded that Lot deliver the men over uh, to them for the purpose of homosexual rape. And Lot then, in verses 6 through 8, he tries to reason with him. He comes out of his house. He comes to, the, to, uh, to them on his doorstep. And they declared their intent uh, to, to him. And then just shockingly, there are, there are no words for what Lot does next. And what Do- Lot does it to this crowd of, of, of men that have gathered there is he then offered his two daughters <clears throat> to these men, to do whatever they wanted to through the evening, but to do, to do nothing to the two men that had found shelter uh, in, in his house. I have no doubt that Lot, as he lives in that city of Sodom, he's convinced that uh, having some kind of a spiritual history with Jehovah, the God of the Bible, that he's being salt, he's being light, he's influencing uh, the city. All of the things that we can do in our minds to justify staying in a place that God never sent us to and never intended us to be. And then something like this comes out of his mouth and out of his, his heart, and you come to realize he wasn't changing anybody. He didn't change anything about Sodom at all. Sodom had completely changed him. I mean, it's mortifying that a father would do what he has done. And their response to Lot is they have no interest in daughters and his daughters, and they told him to stand back, and they were now going to forcibly uh, attack and break into the, the, the home and take the men themselves. The actions of the angels are recorded for us in verses 10 and 11. And when Lot himself is in danger, uh, uh, physically related to all of this, they reached their hands out, they pulled Lot into the house, and they shut the door. And then they smote the men that were gathered around the door, banging and trying to get inside, smote them with blindness and uh, the, the this miracle uh, of God, and, and only that miracle stopped their wicked intentions and and still, I mean, you think, here you are <clears throat> you 've been rebuffed you 've been smitten by God with blindness. would that wake you would that be a concern? Would that cause you to pause for just a moment? okay, five seconds ago. I could see perfectly fine, and now I'm blind. But they are, are so uh, involved and overcome with their lust and, uh, that they don't even allow that to stop them from trying to find the door handle and break down the door and commit the acts that they had come uh, to commit. The angels in verses 12 and 13, they then exhorted Lot to get his family out of Sodom. And they informed him at that point that the Lord had sent them now to destroy uh, the city for its sin. And Lot, uh, verse 14, he obeyed and he set out now to warn his family of the judgment that was about uh, to come, to warn them to flee. He comes to his sons-in-law and Uh, they listen to what he has to say about the judgment of God and all of this, and they think he's joking. They they don't take anything that he has to say seriously. And uh, I don't know what uh, percentage of uh, the world would be in their shoes today if you were to speak to them about uh, the the fact that God has promised to bring a, a great judgment upon the world. At the end of the age, it would just be laughed off. You're crazy. What religion are you uh, uh, into? They didn't take it seriously as most uh, don't today. And, uh, and why would they take, as the sons in law of Lot, why would they take Lot seriously? All of a sudden, now he's gotten some religion. I mean, they haven't heard anything about God. They haven't heard anything about judgment. They haven't heard anything about fleeing the city for its wickedness as he's been there all these years, now making money hand over fist and rising uh, to prominence within the city. And now they're supposed to forget uh, what he has been for such a long period of time and take him seriously. Now, when he starts to talk about God, they don't do it. They won't do it. And then there is the description uh, the, of the destruction of Sodom in verses 15 to 29. And that morning, the angels then urged Lot uh, to hurry, to flee Sodom with his wife, with his daughters, with those that he still had control over and, and authority over, to then flee uh, the city And we're told in verses 16 and 17 that Lot lingered, Uh, and he lingers to such a degree that the angels then come and grab him and virtually force him and his wife and his daughters leading them physically out of the city and then telling them further, run for your lives to escape uh, to the mountains uh, uh, so that they wouldn't be uh, destroyed What a great warning it is in every age uh, that we flee from what God has told us he's going to one day uh, judge in this world or any sin or any environment or any place that God's judgment looms over and we find ourselves uh, uh, settled down into that place. The importance of separating from it uh, immediately. Lot protests and uh, he, you wonder, you look at Lot in here and something went wrong. Uh, He wasn't spanked enough as a child or something. I don't know what is missing uh, uh, for him, but he's told, he's given the opportunity to flee. He he has been supernaturally delivered. He has to just simply flee across the plain to the mountains, and then he gets it in his mind that the mountains are too far for him, too far for him, I would have thought that he would have, uh, in light of what he's seen and all, that he would have not only fled to the mountains in an instant, but that he would have fled all the way back into Canaan and back into the camp of his uncle Abraham, and when he was under the godly influence of Abraham and Sarah and that camp. But no, that's not what he does. He considers that too far for him to run. And so, uh, he, he declares himself unable to escape to the mountains, verse 19. He suggested that he be allowed to escape to a city that was, uh, closer. And then the angel of the Lord, uh, the entire plate thing is dripping with grace. Uh, the angel of the Lord Graciously allowed for Lot to do that, and then, in a very concise, uh, concisely, the destruction of, of Sodom is is there in verses 23 to 25. The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're told that he completely destroyed the city, and everything in the city, and he destroyed uh, right down to the plant life. And then significantly for our purposes this morning, we're told in verse 26 that as they're fleeing uh, that city, and she is fleeing behind uh, Lot, we're told that Lot's wife looked back towards Sodom and she became a pillar of salt or a pillar of ash, a pillar of the destruction that fell uh, upon Sodom. And at verse 17, they'd been told to run for their lives. A judgment was coming, and they were not to hesitate in any way. They were to run with all of their might and not even to look back. And Lot's wife, she hesitated. She looked back at Sodom, apparently still longing for it. And the judgment then overtook her, and she became a pillar of salt. It is very important to realize, and it's why I wanted you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 17, uh, that uh, Jesus didn't speak of every single figure uh, that is recorded in the Old Testament. Uh, he spoke of many, and, uh, but he did speak of Lot's uh, wife, and he addressed Lot's wife in the course of his public ministry and his teaching. And the context of that chapter, chapter 17 uh, of Luke, in which he references Lot's wife, he is addressing his disciples. He's addressing his followers, meaning he is addressing us a- as Christians. Part of the audience is unsaved. They are not Christians. and Among them are the Pharisees. They're listening to all of this uh, as well. And to this audience, Jesus declared, remember Lot's wife. The context of Jesus' teaching concerning Lot's wife is recorded there uh, in Luke chapter 17. And as you might read it on your own a little bit later, he was informing his disciples, both then and now, that the same sin and the same moral condition that characterized the world at the time of the two greatest divine judgments recorded in the Old Testament, uh, the flood in Noah's time and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that what characterized the world immediately before those great judgments will also characterize the world in what the Bible calls the latter times or the last days, referring to those days in human history uh, at the time of Jesus' return, to rapture the church and to take the church from the uh, earth and into heaven, which will then be followed by a seven-year period of God pouring his wrath out upon a Christ-rejecting world and a world that is determined to be uh, Christ-rejecting. And that seven-year period is known as the tribulation period. And it is important to realize that, and you'll never hear it anywhere, but in a church, and then reading your Bible. It's important to realize that God is not going to allow this current and very, very long history of man's rebellion against God, against his word, against his commandments, to go on indefinitely. That one day as he stepped in twice before, as as Jesus speaks about it, that one day in the future in human history, he will step in again, and he will bring an end to man's sin and his wickedness and his rebellion, and he will judge it. And he will not only judge it, but he will judge it to bring an end to it. And in that passage in Luke's gospel, essentially Jesus communicated uh, two things— Again, first, he taught the disciples uh, that the same sins that characterize the world at the time of his two great judgments, at the time of Noah and at the time of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, that these things will characterize the world in the last days, immediately prior to his return. And then Jesus followed all of that with that three-word exhortation as it is in our English Bible, remember Lot's wife. And in doing so, telling us as Christians what will be required of us as we await the Lord's return, the rapture of the church, so that we do not get sucked into all of the wickedness that is being practiced around us. The sins that characterize the world at the time of of God's judgment uh, in in terms of the flood at the time of Noah and uh, of God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah— Everything that marked those days is increasingly characterizes the world that we live in socially and, uh, and morally and spiritually. And in many respects, the sin and rebellion against God that is going on today, it outstrips the sin. We exceed uh, in, in many ways the sins that were being committed uh, at the time uh, that these great judgments uh, God brought uh, upon the earth, uh, abortion would be a, a classic example of, of something that that we practice today, something that 's protected and legitimized by government, and governments all around the world that the ancient world would have never thought. Uh, it would have never entered their mind that, that such a thing could be justified on, on any level. And among the sins that, the, that provoke God's judgment at the time of Noah, as we've even studied it recently in our series in Genesis uh, on Sunday morning, uh, was a tremendous involvement of the demonic realm in the affairs of men. Uh, it was a time of great wickedness and evil. It was a time of corruption. That is, the practice of evil had become so great, and, and, the, and the practice of evil had become so systemic, it had become uh, so sustained that it was leading the world into ruin, And I don't know if you ever have the feeling when you look at the world morally, when you look at the world socially, uh, and you look at it uh, spiritually and practically, where you would look at the world and you see the great tendency and the movement, a headlong uh, running toward wickedness and towards evil and the exploration uh, uh, of evil, that as you look at it, you say, we are heading into ruin." If, if this is not turned back, if, if even the wickedness that's been put into play today uh, it, it was limited to that, if there were no more new expressions of wickedness and evil that man could come up with that are not, is going to be added to what is already being expressed, uh, to look at the world in which we live and to say it is going to ruin the world. There is no future for a world in which human beings are becoming in an ever-increasing number uh, becoming the kind of human beings that they are becoming and of course Jesus said in the last days uh, there will the world will have problems it will be distress of nations with perplexity man will create so many problems in the world make such a mess of the world that when man ultimately looks at the sheer number of problems that, that has been created, they will look at it and say, there is no human solution. Uh, to these problems we have launched things that we cannot by government we cannot by any other means uh, fix these problems and we are not going to be able to fix them with a little more psychology or more government or more government programs Uh, the, the only hope will be something can happen that will turn people back to God Everything that we see today in the world in the form of wickedness and in the form of evil, they all have a single common denominator. They are not the cause. They are not the, the core problem. They are merely a symptom of the core problem. And you can deal with symptoms in a disease all you want, and you will never make any headway on it until you deal with the actual cause of the wickedness, the cause uh, of the evil. And the cause and the source of evil and wickedness is always an abandonment by God, of God, by man. And that's why if we are not already there, we will be there soon enough, where even not only Christians will understand it, but honest and thinking people who are not Christians will look at it and say, there is no hope in man turning around what we have launched here. The only hope is that people will turn back to God and uh, and discover a love for him that is greater than a love for sin. And when you look at a world and you uh, look at it and you see now this is this is uh, this stuff is not contained anymore. This uh, left unabated will lead to our ruin. Then you are living in a time like the times uh, of Noah. It was a time when the world was filled with violence. A time when man gave himself to evil imaginations uh, continually. And then, of course, as we've read here this morning, the single great sin that is on prominent display here, provoking God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah at the time of Lot, was the sin of the practice of homosexuality. And it was a time when the sin of homosexuality had become not only widespread in its practice, not only militant in in, in its attitude, uh, but widely uh, viewed as acceptable behavior uh, by the culture around it. And thus, as we recognize that the world is increasingly becoming ripe for God's judgment, a judgment that Jesus himself, yes, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child, a judgment that Jesus himself Declared his coming. Uh, What is his exhortation? Uh, Remember Lot's wife supposed to mean to us as Christians. What is he saying to us in declaring that to us? I remember when I was a first time I was ever exposed to Lot's wife. uh, um, I'm not that old yet, but uh, was in a doctor's office. I was about nine years old. It was Dr. Dwight D. Murray, Napa, California. I had come in there for some medical something, sick of, with something. And I sat down, and reading material was fairly limited in those days, especially for someone that was my age. And I picked up one of those illustrated Bibles. And I began at the beginning. That's where you begin it uh, in, in books. And uh, thumbing my way through, and it wasn't any, any time at all before I had come uh, to Lot's wife. And there was this picture of her Uh, fleeing Sodom, and then turned into this pillar of salt. And I'll tell you, it really made an impact upon me as a kid. And uh, the account, the event is intended to have an impact upon every single person in the world. Someone has said of Lot's wife that God made her a monument of an unbelieving soul that she is a monument of an unbelieving soul. I don't believe that for a moment. I, I, in fact, I think that misses the point entirely. Because when you read the passage carefully, Lot's wife did believe. And you think about what she had seen and what she had heard. On the night before, she had entertained angels in her home. She had witnessed their supernatural power as they smote these men on her doorstep with blindness in order to keep them from fulfilling their sinful desires. She was fully aware of all of the wickedness uh, of, of Sodom. She'd witnessed it firsthand. She knew the city was going to be destroyed. Uh, she knew why the city was going to be destroyed. She'd been warned by God uh, of the coming judgment. No, she is a woman who believed. <laughs> she is not, unbelief was not her problem. And she believed in God, God's coming judgment upon Sodom to such a degree that she had even begun to obey his commandment to flee the city and her problem was not in the realm of the mind at all uh, she did not end up destroyed because she uh, there was some uh, lack in terms of her theology or some lack in her understanding of the nature of God, or some misgivings about God's judgment, or because of some intellectual doubt concerning the absolute truthfulness of the Word of God. Now, Lot's wife was overcome with the judgment of Sodom because of a divided heart. And while no one could have spotted it outwardly concerning her, but when the Her love and her devotion for the Lord was finally tested against her love and her devotion for Sodom, for the world. Sodom won out. And very simply, she loved Sodom more than she loved God. But nobody could have seen it outwardly until it was put to the test, even as no one knows the condition of our heart in that regard this morning. And when she became a pillar of salt, all that really happened in her life was that she simply became outwardly what she already was inwardly, but nobody knew it. And that is, she became just like Sodom. And I think that one of the greatest lessons to learn from Lot's wife is to notice concerning her that for all that she believed to be true in her mind, ultimately, what won out here was her heart and the fact of the matter is that left unattended the heart will always win out over the mind and the heart will almost always convert the mind over the long haul and you notice her at the beginning her mind is in control and so she begins to flee but her heart is elsewhere it's in Sodom and it's her heart that ends up winning. And when a person uh, merely has a mind for God, but they have no heart for God, that is, their heart has been captured by some love for sin or worldliness, and thus their heart and their mind are not in agreement, again, almost inevitably, the heart has a way of prevailing over the mind. I once uh, were, heard uh, Pastor Don McClure uh, put it this way, and he talked about, uh, picture a scale within your mind, an ancient scale, and how you can take and pile onto one side uh, of, of a scale uh, 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 in terms of what's in our minds, and to view it in our minds. And our minds can possess an absolute mountain of information an absolute mountain of uh, theology and uh, have absolute convictions concerning what is right and what is wrong, believe those convictions, resolutely be willing to defend what we believe, to defend that information publicly, to do so earnestly. And all of that sits like a great mountain on one side of the scale. And then on the other side of the scale, the heart can sit over there, And with just one simple flaw, or just one ungodly desire, where the heart looks at something and says, I want that, that given enough time and left unattended, the heart will win over the mind. And it's amazing what obstacles the mind will work itself through if the heart is somewhere else in order to align itself with some ungodly desire of the heart. The power, the power of a divided heart is frightening. And that's what we see in Lot's wife. And all of this is repeated, not only in her life, but repeated throughout the entire Bible, uh, really. And, uh, and not only in the Bible, but repeated multiple thousands and thousands of times a day, not by pagans, but by Christians, all over the world every day, where a man or a woman will tell a husband or a wife or a friend or a pastor about a decision that they've come to. And they will describe the decision that they've come to with words like this. I know that what I'm about to do is completely unbiblical. I know it is completely wrong. I know that God is right in condemning this in his word. I, 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 and what it is that I'm about to do. And I know that this will probably end in disaster. But I'm going to do it anyway. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm going to do it anyway. The heart is prevailing over the mind. And uh, sometimes you just want to shake them, to wake them up for their own uh, good. Can't you see that the decision is unbiblical? Haven't you invested enough of your life fighting against God and his commandments and being a casualty to this? Do you honestly think as you look at look at the people that have spent now weeks or months or years on the path that you're choosing to go on to, see if every one of them doesn't become a casualty on that path. And how is it that you think you can get on that path and it will have a, a different end uh, uh, for uh, for you? And, and, uh, and, and you try and talk to the, uh, them into it, and not only on a biblical level, but, uh, but beyond it. The fact that the decision that they're making is irrational, it's insane. It, it can't do anything but end up in disaster. And I'm sure most of us have had this kind of a discussion in our life. And they're completely unmoved. And their heart has prevailed over their mind. And what they feel has become more important to them than what they know. And we see this repeated in the scriptures. You think about Pharaoh with Moses. And after one plague, after another, after another, as God unleashes these plagues and the consequences of them come upon the land of Egypt, immediately after the the plagues, Pharaoh comes to Moses and tells him that he will let the people go. And at that moment in time, he recognizes intellectually in his mind, he knows to be true that if I continue to resist God, uh, that it's an insane decision. And then what happens? Within just a few hours of time, his, his heart retakes uh, charge of his mind and once again he refuses uh, to release them. You think about King Saul related to uh, David. And here is King Saul over and over again calling David his son, declaring openly that David is going to be the next king uh, of Israel. David, my son, you will surely be king. And then within hours, he is uh, once again attempting to kill uh, David again. And his mind understood clearly. When, when strongly confronted with the facts that David would be king, but again, given enough time, a, a, a heart out of harmony uh, with his mind, it ultimately won out. Balaam, that famous prophet of the Old Testament, and he knew what was right in his mind. God told him, don't go for no amount of money. I don't want you to go and be hired to curse my people. Don't do it. And and God made his will clear to him, and uh, and he knew what was right in his mind, but the, uh, I want that, that was in the heart of Balaam, that money, that promise of wealth that was in his heart, it overruled everything, and it led to his destruction. And this isn't an isolated one or two or three in the Old Testament God dealt with this disconnect between the heart and the mind of his people throughout the entire Old Testament. And the danger of this very thing, not to a select few among God's people, but the danger that it represents to all of us. And the Lord lamented this repeatedly in the, concerning the children of, of Israel. A sample of it is Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13. And therefore the Lord said, inasmuch as these people, speaking of God's people, draw near to me with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. And it's no less present in the New Testament where Jesus himself declared concerning the Jewish religious leaders of his day, Matthew chapter 15, verse 7, he said, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And why does God lament this disconnect between the mind and the heart in his people all the way through the Bible? in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's because it dishonors Him for even a single one of His children to worship Him with anything less than both heart and mind. But also because He knows it ends in disaster in our lives. And that's why the writer of the book of Proverbs declares, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. And the idea is to keep it guarded and we're to guard our hearts from any person, place, or thing that would want to rise up in our lives and attempt to be... To become more important to us than our personal relationship with Jesus. And it doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian or how strong a Christian we've been or how long a church has existed or how strong a church has been. Jesus brought the same warning to the church of Ephesus in the first of his seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Let me read a portion of it to you. And we'll see the same thing. He said to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you've persevered and have patience, and have labored for my uh, namesake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's the hard side of things. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And now, after so many years, after that church had been established, their relationship with Jesus now was one that was almost entirely consisted of the mind and no longer the heart. The two are no longer integrated in that that great church. And it's a very easy trap to fall into. And I think especially if you have been raised in the church, or the longer that we have been a Christian, to begin to gauge my spirituality based upon how much I know in my noggin and the mountain of information that lies there as opposed to the intimacy and the health of my relationship with Jesus, the degree to which he also has my heart. And as Christians this morning, God has called us to live for him in at a time in human history that is, spiritually speaking, very exciting. But it is also very, very dangerous. And to really and soberly accept the fact that not just any old Christianity or any old Christian life is going to navigate the spiritual and the moral and the social uh, uh, riptides that are going to be in the world in the last days. But to realize that it will require a wholehearted commitment to God not to end up being absorbed by the wickedness and the and the, the, the evil that pulls so powerfully uh, in the world around us. And Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. And it is his way of saying, nothing else will do. And to believe that I am, be, I am spiritual based solely or supremely upon what I know. And yet over time, my heart has been captured by the world or captured by sin and is completely out of sync with what I know. Jesus is saying it is to ultimately set us up to become like Lot's wife, and that will be uh, the end uh, of it. And I think that Jesus' command remains as vital today as the day he uttered it when he said the single great commandment and the law and the prophets is that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first uh, commandment. And our hearts and our minds are to be fully integrated in this great aim, in this great relationship that we have with God I was reading a devotional this week and, and came upon this prayer that was found in, in the devotional. And the writer uh, wrote, It is my earnest desire that the gates of my heart should be opened to none but thee, that thou alone mayest dwell in me. And so for us this morning to look soberly at what we are inwardly, at the conditions of our heart as Christians, in terms of whether we are being slowly but surely conformed to Sodom, to the world. And for all of our orthodoxy, for all of our knowledge, for all of our right thinking, as opposed to being fully integrated with my mind and a love for God, knowing that it is a, the heart that will prevail so often over the long haul of life. There will always be a gap between what we know and the life that we actually live, what we know from the Scriptures and the life that we actually uh, live, all the way until the day that we go to be with the Lord. But that gap should always be narrowing and never widening. And when there is a widening that is occur, occurring, it is because something of the heart is winning over the mind. And it's an indication that both of those things need to be integra- integrated and brought into the same place in in the worship and, and love of God. I'll finish with Paul's pointed exhortation to the church at Corinth in this regard. He said, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And I know full well, by the way, is, is I deliver a message that is actually quite ex- exhortive here this morning, um, uh, this is, does not represent a spanking. I, I believe that every single person in the world has a right to hear what God's Word has to say, and then what we do with it is what we do with it. But everybody has a right to hear that. And I can't tell you, as I, I've been pastoring for 35 years now, and I can't tell you how many times through the years how many people have been convinced that a person like me or in my role as a pastor, in teaching from the Bible, in teaching in the strength of how the Bible declares what it means to know God and have a relationship with God, and somehow we get put in the category of, well, they're supposed to be up there to speak about the ideal, I mean. And it's a good thing to do. Every church ought to have teaching like that and preaching like that and but you don't need to take it seriously. I think he's gone entirely too far in terms of the demands. Nobody can live a life life like the one that that he describes as he teaches the Word of God. And then they go on their way. And then it's one year later, five years later, ten years later, in my case, in in terms of being around for so long, twenty years later. You find out that the Christianity that they had settled into and we're completely comfortable with having their head filled with all kinds of knowledge, but their heart completely dominated by Sodom and by the world. And then one day the test comes, just like it came to Lot's wife, and everything ends in a catastrophe for them. God doesn't write these things in the Bible just to fill the Bible and give people like me sermon fodder. He writes it because it's the truth, about the world, it's the truth about you, and it's the truth about me. And so may nothing of any gap or lack of integration survive our time in the Word of God this morning that exists between what we believe and what we know to be true and the life that we are actually living Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for this clarity of your word. And we acknowledge the tendency in our own heart for our lives to drift away from what we know and for that gap to become something that not only dishonors you, but puts us in danger. And I pray and we pray for one another that you would continue to brood upon our hearts under the weight of these scriptures until there is no gap between what we know to be true and what we believe to be true and the life that we're actually living. And we pray for this work of your spirit, this work of grace in each one of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.